Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Breaking Down the Doors. I'm your host, Mike Organ, alongside Vanderbilt beat writer Adam Sparks. Vanderbilt's game at Zuri Saturday was postponed due to COVID-19 infections and contact tracing on the Vanderbilt roster. Vanderbilt had dropped below the SEC's minimum requirement of 53 available scholarship players needed to play a game. How did this happen to the Commodores, and what does it mean for the future of this season and Coach Derek Mason's future? So, Adam, let's talk about it. Well, let, let's put some context around this because I've gotten a whole lot of questions and emails about what does this mean? How are these numbers figured? How many COVID positives does Vandy actually have? We don't know how many they have. We know kind of generally how many they're missing. Now, Division One teams get 85 scholarships, and that's the max. Those are not always filled every time. But Vandy, after you take injuries out, and after you take COVID opt-outs out of the equation, off of that list, and by the way, they have six COVID opt-outs that we know of. I think the number is actually higher than that, seven, eight, nine. But publicly, we know of six. Once you take those off, then I think we're probably talking about any given week, Vandy having a max of probably about 65 players, something wow. like that. So if you start from 65 scholarship players – and then you have, let's say, four COVID tests. I'm just pitching out that number. If you have four positive tests, well, then you're down to 61. And then if each of those four have three that are have close ties as far as roommates or any of that, that they have uh, contact tracing, so they have to be out, then you're talking about more like 10 or 12 people out. So that's where you get to down to the – what the SEC requires is that you have to have at least 53 players, scholarship players, to play a game. So you can get from 65 to 53 quickly. Last week against South Carolina, Vandy was at 56. They take COVID tests their first of the week, if my understanding is correct, on Sunday. So once you get the Sunday results, probably Monday or even Sunday night, um, then I think they did their count and said either they're below it or they're right at it where they're not going to be able to field 53. I think right now they're probably in the upper 40s for what they have available. Maybe could get some back late in the week with contact tracing, but once you get to that, that extent, uh, you're not going to turn around those numbers, practice all week, and say, hey, maybe, maybe not we could get there. I don't think they were going to have 50, uh, 53. We're going through something similar with the Titans. Their game was postponed to tonight. Uh, they'll play the Bills tonight, uh, and that was for the same reason because they uh, – uh, well, theirs was different, but for COVID violations, uh, protocol violations apparently. Anyway, I, the Titans will play with about two days of practice. I think I saw yesterday six hours of practice in the last 13 days. 
Uh, do you think that the NCAA is a little bit more stringent and would not let a team play with so little practice, even if it did get its numbers back up? Is Does that come into the equation at all? Well, I mean, ultimately, this is can be up to schools. I, I think you could ha- have it two different ways. My take is I think a number of SEC schools would say, we're going to be close to 53. We're going to be around 53. We're going to try to make it to game day to play this game. Or I tend to think Vanderbilt, which is more on the cautious side, uh, for better or worse, uh, of how they prioritize sports, um, you know, along with everything else compared to other SEC schools. I think Vanderbilt is going to be more cautious. So instead of pressing to try to get a game in, which I think some SEC schools would maybe do, I think Vanderbilt is a little quicker to say um, we don't think it's going to happen, so we're not going to we're not going to press the issue. Again, I don't know that they would have 53 anyway. I don't think they would have, but I think Vandy is a little more uh, a little more eager and saying, I don't think we're going to make it, so so we're not. And I, th- I think there are differences, too, because that, that 53 number, you know, NFL, have, NFL has 53-man rosters. There's, a, I think, a little bit of a taxi squad you can somewhat have uh, this year because of COVID. But NCAA, you, you, you have more than those scholarship players. Yeah. The 53 scholarship players, you may have another 15, 20, 25, even some schools – 30, um, well, I'm sorry, 20 um, walk-ons. Um, so Vandy could have 60, 65 players, but a lot of others are walk-ons. The NCAA and specifically the SEC does look at look at that and say that's safety reasons, that's not good. Fairness on the field, that's not good. If you're going down to your walk-ons yeah. and you're playing walk-ons against starters, that's not that's not good for anybody. And so they, they did draw that line at the number of, of scholarship players. Are they still um, practicing? Do we know? I don't know that. I, I, um, I, I suspect they're probably doing some limited things in practicing because you can still have practice with, you know, 45 guys plus walk-ons. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. they're still having some of those workouts. But, you know, you kind of treat it as somewhat of a bye week where you can have some small uh, workouts on the field. And next week they will have a, a traditional bye week. So – Got a couple of weeks until you get back into a game week. You would think that would probably help them replenish their numbers, and it might. That being said, that's not a guarantee. You know, if Vandy has, let's say, six or seven positive tests right now, but then another 15 guys that are out because of contact tracing, but they're negative. Those guys that test positive are probably – out of out of harm's way, so to speak, for the next 90 days. That's what the CDC says. You, you're likely not going to recontract it for at least 90 days. But um, those that are out for contact tracing that still test negative, that are still held out for the quarantine, they did. If they didn't get it, they're still susceptible to get COVID. So it doesn't necessarily get Vandy out of the woods. I don't think. Um, I'm still going to be looking every game week this season and counting bodies and asking questions saying, do you have 53? Cause I don't think just cause Vandy is going to miss this game. Suddenly things are going to get better. Uh, it could get a little better, but I, I still think they're still susceptible. And again, when you start off with a number that I think they did, which is probably around the mid sixties and then you have opt outs or you have opt outs that got you to that number. You're still going to have injuries. It's easy to get down into the fifties. I think mm-hmm. they'll probably be in the 50s most game weeks this year. 
And the difference between 58 and 52 is, you know, you can get there quickly with three COVID tests per week. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. It sounded like Derek Mason saw this coming, too, when you guys asked him uh, after the game Saturday. He seen, uh, he does his best to put uh, a positive spin on everything. He didn't do that uh, Saturday after the game. Yeah, you, I asked a few questions, and others did, too, about the impact of this. And, hey, you going to play next week? And he, you could see it on his face, even through a Zoom press conference, that he was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. So I think he had already done the math. Yeah. If you're only three away from that threshold and you know more tests are coming the next day, um, that could certainly happen. There's, there's a few more wrinkles on Vandy's campus, too that have to be considered. Every Vanderbilt student is tested weekly for COVID. That's mm-hmm. not the case at other SEC schools, certainly most of other SEC schools. They have larger enrollments and can't afford a, you know, a test weekly for every student on campus. Vandy has a smaller enrollment to do that. And why I say that is if a student tests positive, if they're around an athlete enough that athlete suddenly can be brought into the contact tracing. Yeah. Every student is going to know whether or not they test positive because they're tested weekly at another school. A lot of the other schools, they have random testing. So it lessens the chances that a student athlete is going to be in contact tracing with a non athlete that tests positive because a lot of students are not going to know that they're positive. Right. If, if that makes sense. Um, yes, yeah. Vandy also has that, uh, the acronym is P-H-U-C-C, I think. Please don't spell that out and see what it's, <laughs> it's spelled. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's that extra overseeing arm on campus uh, that kind of uh, increases the accountability of the university in terms of COVID, COVID testing, contact tracing that a lot of other schools don't. So again, Vandy is more cautious with these things and they're, they're going to find positives more often because they test every student. The athletes are actually separated in their own dorms. They're separated from the rest of the student population, but they still have classes, and there's not university-sponsored social events, but they still get together, so you're going to have a little bit of that overlap. So those just some things to consider. There's a lot of nuance in this, and you know, the, the, the instant questions that I got outside of the, how did this happen? How many did they have positive was Derek Mason's future. I got, a, I got a number of emails and tweets about that. I don't think it changes that much because as I've said on this podcast before, I was convinced Derek Mason was probably going to be back next year. Anyway, most schools are not eager to make a coaching change under these parameters. PR wise, you'd be ripped pretty heavily for doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, because there are odds stacked against you, and it seems like this is kind of a mulligan year for a lot of coaches. Not saying that's the right decision or not, but I'm saying that's sort of the standard right now. In Vanderbilt, it's usually hesitant to fire a coach anyway, especially with some multiple years left in his contract. I think it would be even less so. Maybe the new chancellor sees it a different way. But I tend to think uh, that wasn't going to happen anyway. That probably increases the chances that he returns now after missing a game because he can, whether it's a legitimate reason or an excuse, he can point to it and say, hey, look, I've only, I don't even have enough players to play a game according to the SEC's policy. It's, it's something he can lean on if he needs to make that case. Ultimately, Derek Mason, if his record doesn't improve drastically, 
will be fired because of his contract situation. And there's a small enough buyout for them to pay. Um, I think Vandy is probably internally going to look at it and say they can push that number down by keeping him another year. And they would have a little bit more uh, leg to stand down by doing it in a pandemic year. And what about paying a a buyout uh, this year when uh, all universities are struggling financially? That's whether that's true or not. That's another PR issue you have to deal with that. Oh, so you can't afford books uh, and you're eliminating uh, teams, uh, women's teams, as well as uh, men's uh, sports. Uh, but yet you can pay a buyout to get rid of a, a football coach. Yeah, it, it would be off brand for Vandy to say we're going to pay a big number to get rid of a football coach because football is really, really important to us. While you're also spending millions of dollars on COVID tests for your students and new uh, and new protocols and all this all this money that's being spent on testing, and you're not bringing in any gate money at all because you're only allowing students into the games. So students get in free. You're not making any money on admission sales and ticket sales. So uh, some schools could make the case that, Hey, it's, we still judge our coaches on the record and we've got to make a change here. Vandy would go completely off brand if they were to make that case. Again, a lot of fans don't like that, but I don't want to tell you what, what you think should happen. I'm telling you what I, I think is plausible that does happen. I think it's, it's probably plausible that they keep Derek Mason because a lot of the difficult circumstances of this year coupled with the fact that they're still going to owe him probably a sizable buyout. I, I would say, and you mentioned this, I would say there would have been a 100% chance that he would be back regardless next season if there hadn't been a uh, change in the chancellorship. Uh, that's the only unknown uh, is what will this new chancellor do? Well, as, I, and I, as I've said before, maybe this changes if they're getting beat by 40 at the end of the year. They're 0 and whatever, 0 and 10, 0 and 9, and they're getting blown out, and there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe that pushes the board of trust to say, we've got to make a change because this is this has gone off the cliff. That being said, when you go back and you look at the performances right now, they were close against A&M in the opener. They've lost the last two games 41-7 to both times. If you wanted to make a case and say that COVID and injuries also, but especially COVID and also opt-outs have made a difference in the season, I'm not saying this is the reason that they've lost these games, but I'm saying this is a legitimate nuance to the conversation. Let me say, people – I've seen a camp of people that say – the numbers are down so low, how can you expect them to perform well? I've seen the other side of they would have struggled anyway. They struggled last year in all these same areas, and COVID was not a factor. I, I, I think the truth is somewhere in the middle of those, those two, okay? But let me, let me offer this in terms of COVID injuries, opt-outs. This is who they've lost on the, on the offense. Four opt-outs on the offensive line, okay? That's offensive line. All four of those guys would have started or played a lot. Running back, Keon Brooks, they lost two games. Javion Marlowe, they lost one game. That's for COVID or injuries. Wide receiver, James Bostick, they lost for two games. Devin Body, they lost for two games. Mac Hereford, I think they lost for three. Amir Abdur-Rahman, they had limited for one. He essentially missed most of that game. So all those are on offense. Every position group except for quarterback. Defense, linebacker, COVID opt-outs, COVID infections, uh, contract 
contact tracing or injury. Linebacker, Austin Orgy, they missed a, missed a game. Michael Owusu missed all three games. Dimitri Moore missed one game. Filetti Afimu uh, missed all three, and he's opted out of the whole season. Secondary, Donovan Kaufman, safety, missed a game. Deshaun Jerkins missed a game. Brendan Harris missed two games. Jalen Maloney, a corner, missed a game. Randall Haney, a corner, missed a game. So you're talking about their half or more than half of the defense that have lost, missed at least a game or more than games. The offense, the offense has been hit everywhere but quarterback. If you notice the position groups that I said there that were affected in a major way by these, I didn't say quarterback and I didn't say defensive line. Where has Vanderbilt been best on offense? Quarterback, where has Vanderbilt been at its best of the, of the groups on defense? Defensive line. The two places where they've had the least impact of these things, of these roster, uh, of these, uh, roster impacts, that's where they played the best. I'm not saying that's an excuse, but I'm saying that is a nuanced reason to put into it when you're judging how this, how this team is played. Well, that, that's interesting because <clears throat> that you bring it up because I wanted to ask you, you know, there was a, a sense of excitement and pretty significant after the first game this season because of Seals at quarterback. And I wanted to ask you, has that improvement continued? Uh, and it sounds like it has. And even though I know he's been under great pressure uh, from what I've seen the last couple of games too. Yeah, I, I think Seals is a, is a bright spot. Uh, Seals is growing into the role. You've seen him be okay in all three games. Um, I think he's their quarterback long-term. You can look at his numbers, and his numbers are fine in some places, completion percentage. His numbers aren't aren't as good in other places, red zone turnovers. Um, But the eye test, I think, for most people that know football, look at him and say, I think that's probably a long-term SEC quarterback. I think if you put the right pieces around him – you can you can do something. Uh, I've compared him a little bit to Kyle Shermer in the past. I don't think that's off base that much for the same point in their career as true freshmen. I will say the rest of the group, after we factored in all the things that I listed about opt-outs and contact tracing and injuries and all those sort of things, it is pretty clear that they're getting worse, not better. And there's a fine line between bad and okay with them. Um, Total offense, the three games, 255, 266, 249. They basically are an offense that gets 250 yards a game. That's not good at all. And, you know, you can't, you can't gain 250 yards and be in a game in college football. But it's, the, it's the, the secondary stats that Vandy can win that they're not winning. They won in the first game, which is why that one was close. They're not winning in the, in the, in the game since then. If, if you listen to these third down conversions, the first game to the second and third game, 41%, 33%, 9%. Wow. <laughs> Time of possession, 34 minutes first game, then 29 minutes, then 28 minutes. Red zone, first game, two for three, then one for three, then 0 for two. In those secondary stats, they were good in the first game, regardless of yards and points. They were good in that game, which is why that game was close and why they had a chance they've gotten significantly worse each of the last few weeks. And you, you can't do that and, and, and be in a game. Regardless of how many guys you have out, you have to convert third downs. You can't make mistakes in the red zone 
you you can't have the time of possession drop. I think what that tells me on offense is they were limited when they came into the season, and they remain limited, and they're probably still going to be limited at the end of the season. I just don't see really a way out where they're suddenly going to become this dynamic offense. I think they're kind of going to have to piece it together um, by threads a lot of the year. And some of those red zone failures go back to what I didn't mention before when I listed those COVID impacts by position. Orrin Milstein, the place kicker, opted out. And so you're left with a walk-on and a signee that's, that's underperformed in practice. And so they're one for four on field goals, and that's where some of the red zone failures have come through. It's such a fine line between almost competitive and bad. And Vandy was in almost competitive in game one, and they've regressed to bad since then. Some of that's COVID. Some of that's injuries. Some of that's they're just not improving. And I think there's so much nuance in between the two camps and those. Well, and, and I think this – I, I called up the uh, SEC stat, passing stats, and I think you make a good point. I agree totally with you that Ken Seals is a bright spot. And obviously it's the long-term answer, and so maybe his current statistics are not uh, indicative of, of, you know, the bright spot, spot that he is on this team. But uh, he is uh, – I think most fans think that he, uh, you know, they're happy with Ken Seals, and yet he is last in the SEC in uh, quarterback rating with a 108.23. And, again, that has a lot to do with his offensive line has deteriorated and and a lot of other things. But uh, I just – it seems so typical Vanderbilt that they – as soon as they get excited about something, as soon as fans get excited about something and the team within the team, the first game that the, the, from that point on that that one entity would be a seals or some other player uh just seems to kind of drop off yeah and you know and if you look at the defensive side uh again there's there's a lot of nuance between they're playing poorly they're poorly coached on one side versus they're impacted a lot by covid and injuries that we need to consider there both of those there's there's relevance to both of those arguments it's not one or the other if you look on the defensive side okay, they forced turnovers in the first game. They haven't forced as many turnovers in the second and third game. They were good on third down in the first game. They have not been as good on third down the last couple of games. Um, that's not COVID. That's, that's a drop-off in talent somewhat, but that's, that's performance. So you can put that on playing and coaching. That being said, you know, third down, third down conversions, they're sixth in the SEC. That's fine on defense. Uh, pass efficiency defense, they're sixth in the SEC. That's fine. They haven't been an absolute train wreck on the defensive side. They've been good in spots. They've been bad in spots. But, again, if you look at the injury and COVID impact on the defensive side, uh, they're really good in the first game in almost all, all areas. LSU, they got torched by the pass. South Carolina, they gave up some pretty timely passes. When the LSU game, they were wrecked in the secondary because guys were out for COVID, contact tracing, and a little bit of injury. South Carolina, uh, same way. They were out. They were down, what, uh, two safeties, two corners, I think, uh, in that game. And so are they making mistakes on defense? Yes. Have they gotten worse from game one to game three? Yes. But the areas that they're they're playing poorly – are unequivocally impacted by the guys that they don't have. Vandy's issues with depth that have been around for decades, their lack of 
walk-ons that are comparable to other walk-ons at other schools that can fill in. Um, and their drop-off of talent that preceded Derek Mason from, you know, your ones to your twos to your threes, um, all those things show up more when you're missing, you know, counting opt-outs anywhere from 10 to 20 guys in a given week because of things other than injuries, because of COVID. And I think those are showing up even more, and I think they'll probably continue to show beyond this game. They're, they're struggling. A lot of their struggles are actually, though, because of uh, being in a pandemic. I was, we were speaking of statistics. I was uh, while you were talking. I looked up the, uh, in the where they are in uh, scoring uh, because again they seem to be like many of the teams that I covered. Uh, but going back to the Watson Brown years, they could, uh, and we've you and I have talked about it on this podcast. They're able to move the ball up and down the field. Uh, we talked about that before the season started that this might be an issue. But it seems like when they get in the red zone, that's been a, a big issue. Uh, and I'm looking at it now, and uh, uh, well, they've, they've, they've not scored. They're averaging 8.7 points, but they're averaging right at nine points per game. Yeah, and uh, yeah, absolutely. It's And they've shown well at pockets of time and then ended up with no points. They're three of eight in the red zone. That's two interceptions, two missed field goals, one fourth down failure for those five failures in the red zone. And yeah, I think it's similar things, similar offense. It's a, it's a mostly spread, three wide, no huddle, sometimes hurry up offense and those offenses are usually better in the middle of the field like you said than they are in the red zone because so much of the space gets concentrated gets shrunk down in the red zone so suddenly that uh that tempo that you're working off of in the middle of the field um there's not as many of adjustments and there's not as much space um to exploit inside the red zone when things get concentrated uh talent and size uh, usually went out, and Vandy has less of that than their opponents in the SEC, and so that's yeah, that's what's happening. And, and the now the problem with the 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 conflated problem with that is that Vandy lacks a lot of speed and playmakers. So, you know, the remedy of of that problem is to get big plays, so you're not in the red zone as much. You're right. getting 20, 30 yard touchdowns runs, and you're getting 50 yard touchdown passes. Well, Vandy lacks the things to do that. So they don't have the big play ability to get those touchdowns outside of the red zone. But then when they get in the red zone, they don't have necessarily an offense that succeeds well in, in the in the small space. So I don't I don't know what the what the answer is there, but I feel a little bit for Todd Fitch because I think the play calling has been reasonably good for the hand he's been dealt. I think it's been enough imagination mixed with enough of different wrinkles in the offense they haven't had the last few years. And the quarterback play has been good enough. Um, You know, there's just not a whole lot to work with. They need to be better. But I I don't think if I listed the problems with Vandy right now, you know, uh, a top 10, I don't, I I think play calling would be pretty far down the list on the offensive side. That's for sure. Well, to to that end, how how concerned are you that as, uh, teams get more film on this offense and know a little bit more what to expect, uh, that that will affect uh, it going forward. Yeah, they're going to have to add more layers to it. And I think Ken Seals is uh, reasonably well-equipped to do that. Um, 
you know, the funny thing is, is the opponents aren't really going to know what personnel Vandy has week to week. I know that's the case for everybody, but doesn't know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The first two weeks, JV on Marlowe was the guy that you would game plan for because he was the closest to a big bat to a big playback they have, a guy that can actually break off maybe a twenty yard run. Well, he was out last game, and then Keon Brooks was in, and Brooks is probably their best all around back of the three. So who's available after? This COVID week and the bye week, who knows? Um, Amir Rahman was their best receiver in the first game, and then he was very limited by injury in the second game. Um, you had two guys that were out the first two games, and then they were back the last game. One of them played, one of them didn't. They have a couple, They have one receiver that hasn't played yet. So, it's <laughs> yeah, Vandy doesn't know, so it's sort of hard for opponents to know. That being said, I don't think opponents are that worried about what personnel Vandy has out there. Ben Bresnahan – is a the tight end is a very bright spot for this offense, and I would tend to think they're going to try to um, feature him a whole lot more in this offense moving forward as long as he's on the field and he has been uh, so far. Mike, I know we're about to get in time to wrap up here, but I just want to tell people that anybody that tuned into the podcast this week thinking maybe that baseball would be on the docket because the black and gold series, uh, which wraps up fall ball, is this weekend. Anybody that wanted to talk baseball, uh, hear us talk baseball, or talk basketball, there's a a Zoomed uh, virtual media day for men's basketball and women's basketball this Thursday. Um, so I, I, we haven't forgotten, um, but I want to hear some developments that come out of that Zoom press conferences with Jerry Stackhouse and Stephanie with the basketball programs. Uh, and I also want to hear a little bit more from Tim Corbin this week about some things they have going on with baseball. So I want to be a little more educated on some of the developments since we can't go out and just watch practice all the time before we talk about it. So that's a tease, I guess, to say next week while talking about football, we'll get into baseball and basketball uh, quite a bit. Okay, then. That does it for this edition of Breaking Down the Doors. We hope you'll subscribe to Tennessean.com if you haven't already. And remember to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And drop us a review while you're at it and a rating. For Adam Sparks, I'm Mike Organ. Thanks for listening. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of... uh human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.